just be careful because you're probably about to see something you won't be able to unsee. We were trying to uh, relocate a problem crocodile. I've caught large crocodiles literally with like the string on my pants. To this day, it's the craziest shoot I've ever been on. Peter, what's the one animal that I've always said to you, you can't mess with? It's the honey badger. I would much rather go up against crocodiles all day and catch crocodiles all day than go up against a honey badger. Mambas won't mess with them. Lions won't mess with them. Nothing will f with a honey badger, except for the lunatic on the other end of the phone who goes, I want to go and catch a honey badger with my hands. And I, I was like, click. Once we're fucking in there, he goes, this is not your domain anymore. I go, it's his. Wild times. Andrew can't hear the music. Woo! Andrew can't hear the music. That's okay. There is music. <laughs> What's up, buddy? How are you, Ukes? George, it's been a long time. How long has it been since I've seen you? About seven years. No, it can't have been seven it's years. Late. Has it well, really? Lucky guy. 2017. Yeah, exactly. 2017, wasn't it? Oh, was I don't it? know. I was. I would have guessed two years. That's what I was going to say off the top of my head. Wait, so That's Forrest, crazy. have you seen Yukels since Face the Beast? Yeah, he came to a premiere party. We had a premiere party for Extinctor Alive season two, I think it was. And he came up season one, crashed on the couch, hung out. Um, yeah. I think that was the last time we when he was cruising through the states so i don't know him why don't you introduce him to yes, me why don't i introduce everybody because this is a regular pod ladies and gentlemen welcome to the wild times the greatest show on television slash your computer this <laughs> is the wild times the best comedy and wildlife podcast in the world fact i'm your host boris galante the broologist joining me as always the effervescent and lovely the, the blue lighting really popping on his eyes with the fat tire beer boxes in the background Mr. Peter, the professor. What's up, bro? I uh, really like how you rolled your tongue there. It, uh, it, it makes me feel warm, the subcockles in my heart. Uh, yeah, had a few IPAs when we recorded last night, and I think you can tell. But yeah, you're a yeah, you can. You, you, need some you sound that. like James Earl Jones, son. You need some magic mind, dude, to get back on uh, the I board. seriously you're do. A mess. I have one in yeah. the fridge. I might do it. You're a mess right now. All and right, all right. as up, always, our other co-host, before I get to our very special guest, the uh, the producer himself, Papa P, the pen popper. How are you, Pat? Ready to go. Let's do it. This is the Look. most chipper I've ever seen you in the morning, Patrick, ever. <laughs> you know what it is? It's it's the anxiety bubbling over from the flight that I have coming up in about two and a <laughs> half hours. So, yeah, it's <laughs> I'm, I'm all right. quivering. And very exciting for everybody. A good friend of mine, of Patrick's, of the pod, of everybody in Australia, the lunatic himself, Mr. Andrew Eucles. What's up, Eucles? Uh, it's absolutely amazing to be here. And I'm still suffering the jet, the jet lag. You've done that trip before from um, Australia back to back to the US, and it, it gets you every single time. And it doesn't matter how you transition your sleep, you're still going to be lagged for a couple of days. So It, it might be the worst flight sleep transition in the world between sydney and California. i don't think there's anything worse i don't know why i don't know what it is but you just never get on track well you're on no. like opposite ends of the world like it's christmas there when it's summer here i mean all kinds <laughs> yeah of that's how it works in a different world <laughs> it's literally down under no it lasts it literally it lasts like two weeks also a lot mm -hmm. of people don't know this but july 25th in california is christmas day in australia that's absolutely according, correct. According to Peter, yeah. <laughs> That's absolutely correct. Uh, uh, Ukes, dude, we got a lot to chat about, a lot to catch up on. We were just shooting the shit. It's been six or seven years since I last saw you in person. 
Um, obviously, you and I and Patrick did our Face the Beast show, and then History Channel just poked us in the bum on that one, and that never went anywhere. And yeah. what um, was that? I don't know about that. Tell me a little bit about the uh, Face the Beast. Just what was the idea? Sure, Pat, jump in. Let's talk about it. Uh, well, the idea was that Andrew, as a wildlife lunatic expert, you know, someone who was very, very good at getting super close to dangerous animals already at that point. Gotcha. Out on expeditions and try and sort of shed light on these mysteries that have happened in history. So the first episode was the Ramry Island Massacre, where supposedly, you know, hundreds, if not close to a thousand Japanese soldiers were eaten by crocs. Andrew went through the bowels of Ramry Island, saved a kid's life along the way. Wow. Oh, yeah. uh, It just kind of got networked to where there was just a lot of pieces and then sure they aired it on a saturday and never <laughs> gave it a real fair disaster. shake sounds disaster. sweet though dude that yeah. shoot in myanmar with ukuls and i was to this day it's the craziest shoot i've ever been on just like i, I reckon the one liner that came out of that was andrew get the fuck out of the net now <laughs> yeah <laughs> you <laughs> said that just like just me. give me five me more me seconds too. five more seconds so essentially what we were trying to do is we were trying to uh relocate a problem crocodile and um you know it was anywhere between you know a three and four meter crocodile which had been hanging around in this vicinity and so we went about setting up a little bit of like a net trap um sort of um uh, sort of design but as we were setting up this net trap, uh, we had the impeding tide, which was coming in. Mm. So it was literally like a race against the clock as I was trying to set this like trigger bait mechanism going on. And so we had the entire crew on one side and then I was kind of up inside this net just trying to set this trigger. And the water was slowly increasing. <laughs> and I remember there was a sounder that was there by the name of Trevor Robinson. Trevor, yeah. And he was genuinely in fear. You well, know, you could hear it on, in his Let voice. me explain something. Hold on one second. Let me explain something. Like seven hours before this, we had taken a pig leg and pinned it to the tree exactly where Andrew was standing. And White Nose, this deadly crocodile who turned out to try and kill a kid like two days later, by the way, um, was was caught on trail camera right there. So we were in the spot where we knew there was a man-eating crocodile lurking us, a giant monstrous crocodile that we watched on trail camera rip a pig leg to shreds. And Andrew was just like, he was like a toddler. He was just like splashing in the water. Like, <laughs> no, he wasn't like that. But he was, uh, he wasn't like that at all. He was very focused, but he was, uh, he was in the water in an area. There was definitely a very mean crocodile. So we were all getting pretty nervous. He also, he also has no amygdala. Is that no, true? He's, Andrew? Way, he's way worse than me. Worse than you. Oh, well, Damn. I don't know. Like, I've really thought about it over the years. And, you know, I think um, I've, I've lived out there in the bush, uh, in the Australian bush. And so, um, you know, when you're, when you're really connected in that type of uh, in that type of space, and you're having that constant exposure, um, you do develop a sense of um, you know obviously a, a heightened sense of confidence. And you got to be really you got to be really careful. I feel like in this industry because you know confidence and complacency there's a very thin line. Mm-hmm. You know, and you often see quite literally in this industry, so many people uh, get themselves into positions where people do get attacked and people do get hurt because they just don't know how to draw draw that line. And so I guess, um, you know, the the last 10 years of my life, uh, I guess it's been like juggling knives at times. Um, sure. But look, I think, um, you know, retrospectively, um, you, you know, with, with crocodiles as well. Look, I've, I've had quite a bit of experience with crocodiles uh, in close quarters. And, um, you know, when you're, 
when you're uh, an individual that's had uh, a thousand hours in the field when, de when dealing with these animals, uh, as opposed to, you know, someone that might be, uh, you know, not as confident in this, in this environment, uh, of course, people are going to have a sense of tension about them. And mm -hmm. I think that was probably what was going on. Kyle, pull up some uh, pull up some of this imagery from this shoot because we we've talked about it a couple times, but I don't think anyone's probably incredible seen it shoot. since it aired on a Saturday. Absolutely incredible shoot! What was this? What was this atmosphere like in Ram? So just pause you? that right there. Pause that right there, Kyle. Look at this. That's fine, right there. That's fine. Look at this. I, I want I want Andrew to answer <laughs> that. I don't want to interrupt him. I just want to point out. This is a real human skull that Brian fingered in the mud outside of the fort of Ramry. And the network goes, oh, we don't want that. Remember this, Patrick? They're like, oh, we of don't course. want a fake skull. And we're like, why would there be a fake skull? And they're like, oh, well, you didn't find a human skull. We're like, of course we found a human skull. We were at the site of a massacre. And meanwhile, Andrew and Brian, Brian was shook by this. Remember this, Ukes? He was like, he yeah. was rattled by holding this human skull. But anyway, I think Andrew should answer it. But Peter, that's a real human skull we're holding there. Yeah, that's we, wild, mean, dude. Yeah. Yeah. So what did they end up saying? They were like, all right, leave it in. <laughs> I don't remember. I don't think they ever believed us that it was real. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was just one of many props that we had that day. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. Right. <laughs> well, I, I, I just think, you know, when you're dealing with that type of remoteness and you're dealing with that kind of um, impoverished, uh, you know, atmosphere that we were in, uh, it's no real shock to be finding body parts, um, particularly in a place like that. Um, to be honest, I, I was actually surprised we didn't find more skulls along the way. Um, you know, we, yeah. we could have literally had quite a collection. Um, oh, look, this is bringing back some memories now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Awesome. yeah we, run, we, run us we, through we it. We missed him, didn't we? We did. We, we missed him. We missed the croc, yeah, here from this net, and then you caught him with the noose. But, right. um, yeah, this trap, and then, you know, that lovely idiot producer that we had who I won't name, who was like, you need to come in because the lightning storm. Which pause you just pause it right the there. <laughs> so what's going on there my recollection is that so andrew's comfortable around crocs i don't know if the, i don't want to speak for you but you've been you've had thousands of hours dealing with crocodilians the co-host brian didn't and had no, some fear I've never even seen one and so in this moment andrew looked behind him and started screaming and told brian there was a croc <laughs> coming up on them uh, just for a laugh. <laughs> right. Now you saw proper fear in his eyes quite literally. It was, yeah, he didn't uh, like that joke. Actually, uh, Forrest, that was your idea, wasn't it? Your it life. was we my really, idea, yeah. Yeah, Don't, we really was... want to get some, um, some energy into this. And... <laughs> yeah. I was great. really hoping you weren't going to tell people that was my idea. I was just going to sit quietly here and let that fly. But yeah, I was like, I whispered in Yuke's ear. I was like, pretend there's a crock right by you guys. And uh, <laughs> yeah, he fucked up <laughs> fucked with Brian. And then there was just like, Big hysterics from everybody but Brian after that. <laughs> so this is the last thing we'll say about Myanmar and then move on to some some of your other stuff that you're working you've been working on in the last seven years. But um in the moment where you guys got the call that someone had been attacked, I've heard Forrest POV on this, but mm. what kind of what was your experience there, Andrew? Guys, it's time for the ultimate face-off. The beard bowl is here. Yes, two best teams square off to see. Who the champion of facial fuzz is. Okay. That's right. It's definitely me. Our <laughs> friends at Manscaped are prepping everything you need for game day. Manscaped's Beard Hedger Pro Kit is the MVP of facial grooming. Yes. And, and, and it's good for your balls. Fact. Offering precision trimming, water-resistant technology, and enough styling options to outplay any opponent. And guess what? 
What? You can join the winning team along with the 10 million men who already trust Manscaped with our special offer. Go to manscaped.com and use code WILDTIMES, all one word, for 20% off and free shipping. Craft your winning look with Manscaped. Yes, sir. I'm, do- I'm doing it right now. I've already done it. Get 20% off and free shipping with our code WILDTIMES, all one word, at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com with our code WILDTIMES. Gear up for the real halftime show where your beard takes center stage. Dude, you might have a career as an announcer. New year, new me. Did you guys know that? Definitely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I can see it. I'm doing it. Just like everybody else, I'm on a health kick. I've been trying to eat healthy. I've been trying to work out more. And I've been doing that with factor meals. Have you guys tried your factors yet? Yes. Delicious. It's restaurant quality. It doesn't make any sense. It's healthy. It's delicious. (laughs) It's high protein. I feel like each meal is a cheat meal. Even though when I look at the macros, it's the opposite of that. Pretty incredible. Yeah, it's also so much less expensive than getting takeout or even buying groceries at the store. Dude, no prep, no mess. Literally throw it in the microwave. You end up with a delicious, healthy, restaurant-quality meal. It's, it's cheap. It's unbelievable. Like I, I'm blown away. I'm going to keep doing it until I have a six-pack, so maybe for the rest of my life. Um, <laughs> And if you want to try yours, head to factormeals.com slash wild50 and use code wild50 to get 50% off your first box and two free wellness shots per box while subscription is active. That's code wild50 at factormeals.com slash wild50 to get 50% off your first box and two free wellness shots per box while subscription is active. I'm going to do it. Already done. I... I, I remember this like it was yesterday, and I guess it's. it's what are we looking at here, real quick? For okay, so we're audio. inside the village or the hut at that point in time, and essentially we're just trying to uh, amend the industry, amend the um, the the injuries that is that is got. But you know what? It, what, what? I think what was interesting is coming into that situation. I think we all kind of looked at his, at each other and thought it was staged. Didn't we? You it know, looks we, nasty. We thought there was acting going on at the time because we could hear like a lot of drama and a lot of commotion and crocodile, crocodile and all this kind of stuff. And we thought, uh, is this village just having it on? Like this can't be a coincidence that we're here trying to, you know, find this problem crocodile and let alone someone's just been attacked within 15 minutes. So yeah, I think sure. naturally I was actually quite um, sceptical of, of, of the entire situation. Uh, and even when it was unfolding, it was, um, I think what it done there is it really made it relative. You know, this is actually happening uh, sort of thing. You know, we are here for this reason. And here we have as a young boy uh, in, in front of us, which is uh, just being mauled by a crocodile. And I'll be honest, I think it was the medic that was there at the time. Because I remember I started running up towards the, um, to the hut. He said, as soon as I got off the boat, he said to me, he goes, just be careful because you're probably about to see something you won't be able to unsee. Wow. That because is- we, didn't, we didn't know what we're walking into. Yeah. yeah. We, we, we just knew. Think- so we, we got a call. I've explained this before on the pod. We were in the research station, which was, I don't know, two kilometer from the village. And we got a call and screaming that there was something that someone had been attacked. And that's all we knew. So we jumped in our little speedboat and went basically across the river to the village. And as we approached the village, it was just chaos. Like people were running around. There was screaming. There was a mother wailing, like, my son is dead. My son is dead because the boy was bleeding out and dying. And then yeah. we hopped off the boat 
and Andrew, myself, Brian, and Eddie, the medic, basically rushed into the hut. And the boy, as you see in that frame, was lying there, mm-hmm. lacerated with arm broken in 20 something places. And, uh, you know, he wasn't bleeding out as in he was going to die from bleeding. But in a village like that, in the middle of a swamp in Myanmar, he was going to die. It was going to sure. go septic and he was going to die. And mm-hmm. so we cleaned and, you know, there is no medical care. There is no nothing. Like, that's the end. So the mother was literally already wailing like my son is dead. Like, she had already written him off for dead. It's and wild. Because we happened to be there, we came in, and I'll let Andrew explain it more, but we triaged him and sent him out on a speedboat. His arm was amputated, but he lived. So we saved, we saved his life. Yeah. Wow. Dude, that's wild. And, the, and they aired this on a Saturday. What a bunch of pricks. It's like you <laughs> found a human skull. You saved some lives and they're like, eh, let's pop oh, go to the Saturday end. You want to see something insane? Ukes decided to make himself bait for the crocodile. And as the crocodile <laughs> slowly approached, got a noose around it. Yes. Now, I would pull, love to pull see that up. Yeah. And go to this ending part here before this went to see him catch it. Yeah. Somewhere uh, there's a baby, but uh, no, no, no. The other way, Kyle. Um, yeah, this is, this is something way. that Mitch cut together. So I don't know if nope, he has nope, like... nope, nope. too far. Just, just look for where the guy's making himself human bait. Kyle, you're up. A- Fucking nitwit. All right, I'll show you. Uh, go to 326. <laughs> nope, sorry. Hold on. That's not it either. Oh, boy. No, what a mess. Here it is. 350. 349, 350. All right. 350. There, watch this. Okay, so now we're in the boat. Andrew, uh, we don't, I guess we don't see it much. Yeah, but this mm. is, yeah, Andrew's in the water. I, it might be cut together in a weird order. It, Andrew's, it is. Yeah, okay. They don't even have a shot of it in there. Andrew's in the water, splashing, waiting for this croc who's kill, tried to kill a kid four days prior. And right. the croc approaches, and he gets a noose around it. And then this is the this is the chaos. And then this Jesus. is us freeing it later. What um, was, uh, I, I noticed. Look at this. Crazy. Yeah, that is crazy. <laughs> Just r- rolling around there, the death spiral. Yeah, he came lunging out, and Ukes is just in a in a wetsuit and it's like a thousand degrees out and yeah that's that's the crew getting charged by the croc it was lunacy so so what's up with this why was he so violent was it just starving or was it like a man eater look i think i've got a bit of an interesting take on crocodiles i think once you're once you're in control of a crocodile or you got a lasso over them they're the easiest animals to deal with they're so dogmatic in their routine you know they've really got a, a set kind of pattern and not just that um uh, because of the way that their bodies are designed with the the, the, the lactic acid system, they just mm. they just die in the ass real fast. I don't know. I don't <laughs> I don't see crocodiles. I know there's such a big thing about crocodiles and these large man eaters and all that kind of stuff. To be honest, and I've done it before, I've caught large crocodiles literally with like the string on my pants. <laughs> Lit- but I'm being serious, literally. Yeah. Um, That's wild. and I, I guess it's almost like a good funnel into like the honey badger. Because I would much rather go up against crocodiles all day and catch crocodiles all day than go up against a honey badger. Oh, no any question. day of the week. No any question. day of the week. You're, you're dealing with, com- with two completely different animals. And I know people would say, automatically, yes, but a honey badger can't kill you and a crocodile can. But it's all um, it's all relative to the environment that you're in. Obviously, if you're swimming around in water, you know, you're mm. going to be uh, you know, putting yourself in a, in a situation that you can't get out of. But um, in terms of being able to handle, restrain, and actually getting control of, um, I dare say crocodiles are probably one of the most easiest animals. So let's talk about that for a second. So anyway, Peter, that was where we all first got to know Yukels. That was many mm-hmm. years ago. After that, we went to the Caribbean and did a shark dive thing. And Andrew tried to get himself eaten by a bull shark, which was- That almost happened. That really, really, really <laughs> almost happened. At what point I, in your guys' relationship was the circle jerk? 
Uh, we're still working on it. We do it oh, okay. regularly. Can yeah. I join? I wanna... Yeah, we do digital circle jerks because he's in Australia. Oh, excellent. Yeah, it's excellent. really nice. Yeah. Let's um, talk about this honey badger. You, you just reach off screen and then Andrew puts his hand in like this. <laughs> and then, yeah, it's like that. Yeah, it's really nice. Um, no, yeah, ask, ask Patrick. That's the only time he's ever seen me like completely flip out on set when I was like, Andrew, get out of the water <laughs> because Andrew nearly got eaten by the shark. Well, that's when you're uh, feeling the adrenaline. You know dude. what I mean? Like for oh, me, yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not an adrenaline junkie. I, I really, I'm not. You know what I mean? But uh, there is something about um, a sense of not having control that really just sparks me. You know what I mean? I love it. I love. Mm. I love the thrill of it. Um, okay. So I don't what, believe that is an adrenaline junkie, but if you say so. I, yeah. You know what I love doing in Australia? And it seems to be that the one thing that I really love doing is I love going to catch the water buffaloes with lassoes. Yeah. So He's I go on foot and I run them down and I catch them with lassoes. And I feel that's the one thing that I just, I don't know. It just, it's such a rush. You'll Australian have to try rodeo. When you come to Australia Forest, you'll have to try it. It is. I've never it done it. Kyle, hold on. Kyle, pull this up. Go on YouTube and find Yukels catching water buffalo with a rope. This is a real thing. But um, anyway. I did one a couple of years back with Adam with Green Tree. But um, oh, cool. when yeah. I – actually, you know what actually happened? After I'd done the filming with Face the Beast, I, I, did, I did a walk across Arnhem Land. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that, actually, and your that horse was hell, man. and all of that. I, yeah, so I hold to... on. Let's let's stay, hmm. let's stay a little bit linear here because it's interesting. So that was when we met Yukels. Look at this fucking loon. He's just roping water <laughs> like bubbles. Look from it. <laughs> Jesus. I do Christ. really want to do this. It looks insane. Uh, um, looks ludicrous. It is yeah. ludicrous, uh, especially Andrew doing it. Because just no just like, protection, bare skin shirt with no shoes, big ass horns. That's <laughs> crazy, yeah, man. At the same, look, uh, water buffaloes are dangerous, and I, you know, they're an incredibly intelligent animal that definitely knows their danger arc. And, um, you know, I've talked to guys that actually spent some time in Africa there with the Cape Buffalo. I feel like the Cape Buffalo behaviorally are probably a little bit different. And I think it's more to do oh, with the fact no, that. No question. <laughs> yeah, because well, the Cape Buffalo are constantly being predated upon. So they've already got that instinct that or already that reaction. But yes, they are a, you know, they are a flight animal, but their fight response happens quite fast. Whereas. An Australian water buffalo, I feel like you can chase him around all day and he'll just keep on running until you really put that animal into a position where it's cornered or it has mm-hmm. to defend itself. That's when you're going to get a different change of, of behavior. But the, the Cape buffaloes are, yeah, I think they're, they're a bit more on the wild side. You, c- you couldn't do that with a Cape buffalo. It would kill you. Um, oh. no question. <laughs> no, I know you don't believe You've got to do it now. <laughs> yep. uh, are the no, Cape okay. buffalo so the ones so with the- huge muscles? Uh, no, no oh, you're thinking okay. gar, gar, um, okay. war. Uh, there's two things I want to talk about. So since since our shoot with Andrew and History Channel, like dropping the ball on that, we uh, he's done two things that I find he's done a lot of things that are really interesting, but two things that I find really remarkable. Peter, do you know what Arnhem Land is? Of course not. Of course, I, I just set you up for <laughs> failure. Peter, Ky- Patrick, do you know what Arnhem Land is? O- only because of what Andrew did. Okay. So yeah. Kyle, while we talk, while Andrew explains Arnhem Land before we even get into his adventure and what he did that no other Western human being has ever done, pull up a map of Arnhem Land so people can see it, Kyle, on the screen. And then Andrew, explain what you did because this is uh, this. I, I don't know why this isn't like bigger news. Like the guy who walked the Amazon was that Ed Stafford. Like he got a lot of info for this. This is like credit for this. This is way harder than walking the Amazon. Um. Anyway, explain oh. Arnhem Land. 
Well, look, I had been told that it couldn't be done on a number of occasions. And I think um, I'll tell you, the, 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 real, the real personal part to this is there was fear in this undertaking. There was. Uh, if you've ever taken that drive from Darwin down to Catherine and you're looking uh, amongst the frontier that surrounds you, uh, there's one thing that you notice in, in that kind of landscape. And the first thing is how harsh it is, uh, how remote it is. And essentially, if you go missing, it's a perishable country. Yeah, but you you know you will not last. You know, um, and essentially when they even when they you know when the rangers or the police are doing their search and rescues, we generally you know cast like a net of like seventy two hours upon someone. Um, you know the fact that uh, water uh, can be uh, incredibly hard to find. The fact that it's so hot up there in the Northern Territory as well. Not to mention the amount of predators which are there too. Um, that landscape there represented uh, what I like to call um, nature's labyrinth. Mm-hmm. because if you get lost well you just walk around for circles you know your only friends will literally be the crows and i think that that's where um you know there was actually a lot of fear in me and um you know when i did embark on that trek it was close to 800 kilometers that i walked um i i did it in 42 days which um essentially i i'd been given some really good advice and it was essentially just keep listening to your body uh whenever you're hitting ground which is relatively flat keep moving the thing about Arnhem Land is Arnhem Land, uh, it's not like a stretch of desert. Arnhem Land has a number of different um, types of um, biomes and, and different habitat types from like floodplains to wetlands to billabongs to, um, you know, higher Scotland country and plateaus and all that kind of stuff. So it's an incredible, um, incredibly difficult landscape to try and walk across. Um, I remember there were a couple of situations there because I'd taken a horse almost as moral support. And um, there's actually a quote, and I think it really talks a lot about the journey. And I guess at the end of it, the kind of conversation that I have with people when people would ask me this question of well, what was Arnhem Land like, it was a bit like this. So there's a, there's a quote from a novel, and um, sometimes it makes me emotional because I feel like it's very true. There's a quote from a novel that says, there's a boy and a horse, and they're in the forest. And the boy turns to the horse and says, I can't make my way through. Like, I'm lost. I can't make my way through. And then the horse says to the boy, can you see your next step? And then mm. the boy says, yes. And then the horse says, well, then just take that. Mm. Love it. And I feel that the, the power of that message and the power of that quote can be relatable to a lot of people in different ways of life. And not just necessarily the extreme of what I had done, but as an example to, you know, sometimes we find ourselves at a crossroad and we don't know which way to go in life. So sometimes you've just got to go with your gut. You've got to go with your instinct. And if you can see a path forward, then move towards that. So I think um, inevitably the the entire journey had uh, a lot of, um, uh, you know, significance with it. Um, and I'm not sure if I'd, I'd communicate. So I'd actually film this as an entire documentary um, that went to Netflix and it's also went to Discovery Networks. And... Um, I guess I'm in a situation now where I've had a number of episodes which have went to network and it's funny because they're popping up in Europe, they're popping up in South America, they're doing the rounds. They're everywhere where they're not, where they, sh- where they should be. Like I've been trying to get my content into the US and it's not, it's not in the US. And I feel like, and Forrest knows how hard I've worked over the years. Oh, yeah. And the Talk discipline constantly. and the deep experiences. And I just haven't had my break. It'll click. Maybe this will be it, Ukes. Maybe people will watch this. I'm telling you, on the wild times, people are going to want to see it. But let me, let, let, let's let back up for a second here. Peter, I want you to just understand this for a second. 
first of all, Yukels weighs about 140 pounds soaking wet at his fattest. Okay. Okay. Just, just think about that. I want you to put that picture in your head. Then he decides to walk 380 miles over the roughest country in the world. Well, okay? he said 800 kilometers, which is 500 miles. Oh, I so thought it was he, 600 kilometers. Um, no, 500 miles he walked. Okay, sorry. Sorry. Just you just you just, you just just gypped him out of 120 <laughs> hard-fought miles. That All was right. 10 days of his journey first. <laughs> I thought it was 600 kilometers. That's what the Daily Mail said, all right? Um, 500 <laughs> miles, Peter, that he walked. That's more yeah. than you've walked in your entire Ever. life put together. Yeah. Oh, without Five, question. 500 miles that this, this skinny kid walked in some of the hardest landscape in the world kyle pull up that picture that picture i told you to get ready look at what uh, he looked like coming out like of oh my goodness yeah, i came out like a skeleton he came wow. out like a fucking skeleton look at his feet those are those are yeah. monkey feet if i've ever seen monkey feet. <laughs> and it doesn't horse, even look like you and, and, i i actually had to do the last 100 kilometers with no shoes on because my my shoes my, my shoes were absolutely shredded and that was tough walking that escarpment country was was fucking tough I can't tell you what I went through, but I said to myself that I was going to fucking crawl out of there. Yeah. I was going to right? die there or I was going to crawl out. And that didn't was it. Horse, that was my mentality. Didn't the horse die, Andrew? No, he lived. Oh, I don't know why I thought the horse died. <laughs> on the he track. did. Yeah. So when, when production put the entire uh, documentary together, um, there were times that the horse collapsed when we were mm. out there. Not many people oh, know this. We went, me and that animal went through hell. You know? Sounds um, like it. Yeah, and he came out pretty emaciated at the end. We we both came out, and it was interesting. People also didn't know that I took I took a green horse into this situation. I never put a pack saddle on him, and until we wow. got out there, this was the most jittery animal. By the time we'd walked halfway, not only did I I need a lead on him, he was actually helping me to round up the buffalo when I was trying to catch him. So it was wow. an interesting connection that was happening between me and the horse as well. And I'm not look, I'm not a horse person. I'm the most inexperienced person with a horse. I'm, I can't, I can barely ride a fucking horse. Uh, and obviously <laughs> that this, connection, this, horse, man. this horse couldn't be ridden. But yeah. I, I think, you know, in doing any kind of quest like this, you need something to work off and some kind of support. And I think mm -hmm. in a comical sense, it's, it's okay when you're talking to that animal. What's not okay is when the animal starts talking back. Yeah, that's, it's, when it's, that's when you've got to get the fuck out of there. Full sentences. What were you eating? Like, what, what was your main diet for those 42 days? Anything and everything I could get my hands on. Because you didn't like, take food, the, right? Within, within, the legal, within the legal context, um, I was... Uh, <laughs> what were some was, of the staple food sources that were, no, I'm not going to say abundant, okay? Yeah, feral pigs, uh, plenty of feral pigs. And Look, feral pigs are relatively easy to catch on foot if you know which one's to target. So I was, I was targeting a lot of the larger sows, running them down. Uh, water buffalo, I think I caught about three buffalo on that trip. Um, so, but look, the, the issue not necessarily is going to be the, uh, the food that you're collecting because you're dealing in such a hot and humid environment. The issue is always going to be in the preservation of your food. So yes, right. I took salt. Mm. Um, but look, that was a constant thing. And, and, and because you are dealing with that environment there, you are constantly on the move hunting. And I think, you know, I really want to uh, just uh, draw on, on one, fa one fact here. And that is, um, you know, I work quite closely uh, with, with Indigenous people up there in the Northern Territory. And this is to do with another side, which is, so I'm also in the Australian Defence Force, um, you know, coming in as a survival instructor, but we work very closely with the Indigenous there. And, you know, um, Sometimes I just say to myself, how the fuck did they survive out here 
hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah. I, I consider myself being really good at what I do. But how the fuck did they survive at what they did is unbelievable. You know, it really is. It's it, it's the true, it's almost like the true human when you look at that. You know, we, if we look at ourselves today, uh, I feel like we're all like domesticated dogs in a way. Like we're turned into like Labradors. But the wolves of the For past sure. were yeah, essentially yeah, like yeah. the Aboriginals. They were the wolves. You know, I've watched, I've watched some of those Aboriginal kids knock birds out of the skies with boomerangs and hmm. just the accuracy that they've got with the spear. And it doesn't matter how much time that we spend out there in the field. They've got something which is just innate. Sure. And, oh, yeah. And it's from the environment. And I, I, I just think I've always just been uh, in awe of that. And I've always tried to be that. Right. Know? Yeah, Andrew, if we've talked about Forrest and I were, you know, we were standing by our car eating some bananas and we saw these kids in Madagascar. And I'm not kidding. They were probably four or five <laughs> playing with us. looked like playing with a slingshot. They were plinking birds, one shot, one shot, Crazy. grabbing food. Like we saw them get like six birds out of a tree yeah. with six <laughs> shots. And we were like, these kids are built different, man. Yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah. Almost yeah. genetic, instinctual. Peter, down. Did, did you catch There's, I have questions about Arnhem Land. I want to know about how you slept and how that worked. But um, Peter, I don't know if you caught this because Andrew said it in such a nonchalant way. He <laughs> ran down pigs. So Andrew used oh, to be a competitive a, yeah. a competitive triathlete or not triathlete marathon runner right andrew runner yeah yeah, yeah. and um marathon runner so he runs down pigs like native americans used to run down deer um it's wild man he's probably the only person in the world who still does that not joking i love it and um you know with, with the tours that are run uh up in the northern territory i take people out and it's about you know teaching them the skill set and and making them confident but showing them what's what's humanly possible and yeah, there's definitely a lot of strategy to it. You know, if you're just focusing on uh, a random solo ball, um, not even a dog's going to be able to keep up with him. You know, mm -hmm. so you've got to be very, very selective about the individual that you're targeting. And not just that, it's in the same way that, um, you know, a cheetah might be identifying the weakest link within a group. That's exactly mm. what you've got to do. And yeah. I think what's happened, I think what's happened over time, um, and this might just be like an internal thing, is like a lot of people see what I do and they go, uh, this guy's crazy or this guy's this or this guy's that. And I think when the general public is saying that, it's okay because it's okay to look at me through those kind of eyes. I think where I've copped a bit of flack is actually within the industry where people will go, he's crazy and try and discredit me. And it's just like, well, hold on one second. I I actively live out. This is what I do. It's not it's not me dealing with captive animals from zoos or whatever. Like I... I catch the wild animals. That's what I've done since a child. It's, it's all I've known. It's just that's that's been my thing. You, buddy, been... I just want to say one thing, and I don't want to cut you off, but I want you to consider this. It doesn't matter what you do. If you're in the public light, you are going to be ridiculed, especially in the wildlife space. I mean, Peter and Patrick fucking get it just for doing this podcast. Like people will yeah. jump online and write negative things about them just for sitting here chatting with me about our opinions <laughs> on animal stuff. I mean, it just it, absolutely don't let it true. get you, man. People are lunatic. Yeah. Like, hey, not, for us. not the good way. I've been definitely thick, thick skinned about it and all that kind of stuff. But um, there's definitely a topic that I really want to discuss today outside of all this. And it's about the Tasmanian tiger. But just we'll keep that in. Oh, in the, yes. that's a good, that's called a tease. That's a tease. I, I sent a text to the group chat last night. I was very yeah. excited. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. About cat litter. A, a cat text litter. about cat litter. That's what you Pretty litter. About. You guys know I love my cat Lemley. Peter yep. loves his cat Forrest. You need to get some. I might. Pretty, pretty Litter is a, I'm not kidding, 
a life-changing product for me. Wow. It's, <laughs> dude, there's no odor. There's none. Oh, God. I don't know how this works. But here's the best part. You don't have to scoop the urine out. Because that's the terrible part of cleaning your cat box is, is the urine and it it's turns also to clay. The, it's also the spot that makes you have to clean it all the time no. and refill it. Dude, the crystals, the individual crystals absorb the urine. So all you have to do is grab the poop. There's no smell. It's, uh, I wish I could go back in time <laughs> to have this product when I had my other cats. Pretty Litter helps keep tabs on my cat's health, keeps odors down. You and your cat are going to love Pretty Litter as much as I do. Go to prettylitter.com slash wild and use code wild to save 20% on your first order. That's prettylitter.com slash wild, code wild to save 20%. Prettylitter.com slash wild, code wild. Terms wild. and conditions may apply. See site for details. Hey guys, if you're enjoying, whoops. Guys, if you like the wild times, check us out on Patreon. We put out four extra podcasts per month. That's one commute a week that you're just going to be laughing and learning the whole time in the car. <laughs> hey, let me do, do something else. This is the late night content, the stuff that we, we can't show on, on YouTube because they'll kick us off YouTube. It's the Cinemax of podcasts. <laughs> Uncensored, raw dog. It's the Cinemax of podcasts. Check it out. Link right here. Um, wait, Forrest, yeah. your phone's ringing, dude. Oh, Can you answer it? Me. Yeah, pardon yeah. me. Sorry, guys. Hello? Um, hey, is this Forrest Galante? The one and only. <laughs> Hey, this is uh, Billy from um, streaming ser- the new streaming service, Flippio. Oh, yeah, Flippio, of course, Billy. Yeah, yeah big fan, big subscriber. You're, you're aware of, uh, you know who Andrew Eucles is? He's the guy who walked across Arnhem Land on 42 course. Days. Personal hero of mine. Okay. So we're actually interested in buying a new series about um, him doing it again. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but we want someone to be there for banter. Um, sure. Would you be interested in, in doing this with him? Absolutely not. Uh, not only does your <laughs> okay. network not exist and you have no viewership, but um, outside of that, I'm not nearly as tough, as rugged, as manly, or as capable as Mr. Eucles. And I think this is a wonderful suggestion, but part of Andrew's okay. charm that the last time I did a show with him that we had to remove is the fact that him on his own doing his funny little dance moves and silly Michael Jackson shenanigans is what makes him so adorably charming and enjoyable. And, you know, I'm kind of a curmudgeon. I'm like an old man. Yeah, sure, sure. in a young man's We've body. Seen that. So yeah. I would, uh, I would. It's not good. It's Odd not couple. good. No, it's really quite unpleasant. So if it were me, <laughs> I would recommend doing a show with Andrew and leaving me out of it. All right. Much so, more capable and so let me ask you this uh, phone call aside, Forrest. All what right. would be this? Let's say this really happens. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's Netflix this time. Okay. Well, what, that's different. <laughs> what would, how much would they have to pay you? to attempt to do this. So here's the thing. Ukes and I spoke a lot before this and right after he got back, it sounds like fucking hell. Like yeah, it really does. Yes. Fucking clearly. Hell. But yeah. that being said, I could really use a good diet. So um, <laughs> <laughs> I'd do it. No, I do it. Honestly, like all jokes aside, I would do it. If, if Andrew came to me and was like, Hey, you know, I'd have to get paid some money. Like I'm not just up and doing this misery for nothing like that <laughs> lunatic. But yeah, if there was, if there was like, Hey, go and do this, you and Eucles together, get through it 40 days or whatever it was. I'd, I'd definitely go for it. Right. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it the Andrew way though. Andrew's too tough for me. I swear to God, I'm not just making that up. I'd have, I'd have probably a crossbow or a rifle. I'd certainly have two pairs of shoes. I'd have, I'd have an RV. And- yeah, <laughs> you know, that'd be a fantastic idea. 100%. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I do a whole second ride. 
I do yeah. want to I do want to point something <laughs> yeah. out that is important. Like all networking jokes aside. Andrew is a true survivalist. I am not. People people often turn to me as a, like a survival expert. Survival. I'm not that person. I've never been. I said that on Naked Afraid. I've said that since the beginning. I'm not a survivalist. Yeah, I can build a shelter. I can make a fire. I think anybody with half a brain can do those things. Most of that stuff, and Andrew can attest to this, is about being dynamic and adaptive. Um, I can do any of that stuff. That's fine. I can filter water. I can do all that. But I'm not a survivalist. Andrew is a survivalist. If you put Andrew and I out in Panama, Arnhem Land, anywhere, he is going to out-survive me a thousand times out of a thousand. I'm a biologist. I like to tinker with animals, not try and push myself to see how long I can survive with nothing. So Yeah, you're kind of a pretty boy. Uh, oh, yeah, you have this. become well, one. That's uh, what I've I think, heard. I think persistence, <laughs> you know, I think it, it's, it's that persistence and, and uh, I think it's the, it's the mentality of it is what makes a good survivalist is not giving up, not quitting. And um, and having a good sense of ingenuity, you know, being able mm-hmm. to look at a problem and look outside the box, you For know, sure. and I think that's something that that kind of creative way of thinking can only really happen when you spend a lot of time out there in the bush and, and just being able to look things up. But, yeah. you know, I think in any kind of survival situation, um, have you guys seen the Snow Society? No. On Netflix? Mm-hmm. Have you guys watched it? So you, you guys know about the incident that happened in, I think it was in Uruguay. Uh, no, they were flying from Uruguay. It was a soccer team that was going to oh, Chile. No, yeah, it's the up, rugby team. The rugby team. That's them. Yeah. And yeah, they yeah, ended yeah. up crashing in the Andes and oh, they wow. had to survive. I think it was 72 days that they had to survive out there in the snow. Wow. And I just watched the film and, and done a little bit of the, the, the wiki read on it. Now, these guys here, they obviously um, – they didn't have any kind of survival backing or understanding all that kind of stuff, but the way in which they were able to push their bodies to the extreme. So um, they actually ended up having to eat the dead. Okay. But can I just say one thing about this, Andrew, the reason they were able to do that is because they were rugby players, not soccer players. If they were soccer players, (laughs) they would have faked, they would have faked injuries. They would have been worried about their hair. Uh, They would have all died within 12 hours because soccer players, if you're listening to this, I stand by this are pussies because they were (laughs) rugby players. Yeah. I don't give a shit. Because they're rugby players, they fucking toughed it out. So that's right. important. Don't don't insult but, us by calling us soccer players. What but what 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 I want to try and say, I guess, is for the audience at home, is everyone has the innate ability to survive. And at the end of the day, you don't know what your you don't know how you're going to react until those circumstances have been put in front of you. You just don't. Right. You know, you really you really, really don't know how you're going to react. And the fact that these guys were able to survive for that period of time. And you can imagine the mental trauma of having to eat the person next to you just to sustain yourself. Oh my God. The moral Wild. implications that that would have on you, both, you know, both are questioning your belief system or your religion and all that kind of stuff. Just imagine me turning to Pat and being like, hey, so Forrest has been gone the last 72 hours. I'm going to start gnawing <laughs> on his fire. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, man, literally, crazy. Like, the, the context of thinking that you would be in and trying to even. Uh, transplant that way of thought is just well you can't and, really and predict at the time what you do even at the time when that became a, a news story around the world back when you know you read your news in newspapers people were outraged and and these guys took a lot of heat for oh, wow. the fact that they you know ate humans whereas like you know and so i i remember hearing about the story as a kid and just being like but wait the option was to die <laughs> right like if i'm dead please please have a feast. I actually might request that, like regardless yeah. of the survival situation. I might. <laughs> Andrew, who would you that. rather eat, Pat or Dead Forest? 
Uh, well, um, it all have to be categorized into what I would consider as junk food. Yeah. <laughs> that a would be a stuff. meager meal. A lot of saturated uh, fats. Fat content. I'd be going for fat content. That's probably so. You go forest and start with yeah, cheeks. More, more meaty. <laughs> more meaty. Good bone marrow on this boy. Yeah, oh, I yeah. take I take my vitamin. All right, I want to get into something else. Can we transition a little bit yes. here? Sure. So, Andrew Ukes got back from Arnhem Land, weighing all of eighty-four pounds and looking like a look like a wet spaghetti noodle of a human being. And uh, we started chatting. This was your when did you finish Arnhem Land, Ukes? That was like four years ago, three years ago. Um, it was pre-COVID, yeah. So it was yeah. what I think two thousand eighteen. I knocked it. I think, yeah. Anyway, we talked about that. A year or two went by. I get a call out of the blue, a, a WhatsApp from Ukes. He goes. Chooch, got a chat with you. And I was like, great. Haven't heard, haven't talked to Yukels in a, a year or so. Let's let's get on the phone. Now, before I explain the next absolutely fucking insane thing that came out of this boy's mouth, Peter, what's the one animal that I've always said to you, you can't mess with? Like, there's nothing you, can, you can't, can't fuck with it. It's, it's the honey badger. The honey badger, right? Yeah. Have I not said that on this pod? I don't yes, know, a dozen you've times. said it a couple times. Yeah, yeah it's like an, un, an unfuckable animal. I mean, like, and I mean that. Like, it is <laughs> yeah. just something... You can't, like a ferret's bad enough, and that's a honey badger that's this big, right? It's like it's unfuckable. Mambas won't mess with them. Lions won't mess with them. Leopards won't mess with them. Hyenas won't mess with them. Elephants won't mess with them. Nothing will fuck with a honey badger, except for the lunatic on the other end of the phone who goes, "Yeah, Chichi, how's it made?" I, I'm doing forever right now. He goes, "I want to go and catch a honey badger with my hands," and I, I was like. <laughs> Click. No, I didn't do that. But um, I was just like, you're an idiot. That's not possible. What are you talking about? And uh, I was wrong. So that's all I'm going to say to set that up. But Yukels, what, like, talk about your thought process and that whole I, thing. Like, what, what? Okay. So literally, I'm going to show you my phone. And can you see what's on my phone? Sure. <laughs> oh, wow. Badger. That's a great honey badger. <laughs> Beautiful picture. photo. Yeah. Very I, good. This animal means so much to me. Like, really. Um, and you know, I think there's a couple of um there's a couple of uh episodes, I think it was maybe filmed on that geo, and I think someone picked it up and made it into their own kind of thing, and it went viral and it was about the honey badger doesn't give a shit. Oh, yeah, right? it's huge. And it was the footage of this, you know, honey badgers going and consuming like puff adders and breaking into like um, you know, honeybee nests and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I guess that's where my fascination kind of uh, arose from. And look, as a child, I had ferrets as as pets and I'd do uh, rabbit hunting and all that kind of stuff. So I already knew a little bit, a, a little bit about the family of, of, of the muscle day, the muscle day family. So like the weasels, the stoats, the mongooses, the badgers and so forth. And I've always just been so fascinated about those animals. I really have. And I think the honey badger represented a couple of things. It represented an animal that, I had been told was a bit of like a unicorn in Africa, like people which had been guides their entire yeah. life had been like, well, I did see one. Yeah, that's me. Four years ago. Yep. Or, you know, um, and so it I've, really, I've seen it, two. I grew up in like the heart of it, which is where Andrew right. went to in Zimbabwe. Yeah. And in my entire life, I've seen two. Yeah. And, and I grew up on safari in the bush in the highest density place for honey badgers in the world. And I've seen them twice in my life. Wow. Okay. So, Elusive. And, there he is. <laughs> Look at these things. Yes. Um, and so the other name for the honey badger is what they call the vratel. And it's because the noise that they make is, <laughs> which essentially sounds like a rattle. Yeah. And it's funny because I feel like that's actually been like uh, scarred into my brain, that noise, because I heard it on several occasions when I when I quested for them. But look, I made I made some big fundamental mistakes with that. And I just want to say, 
it was a sponsor, K-Bar, so K-Bar Knives. Uh, I actually got in contact with um, uh, one of the guys there, Joe, and just said, hey, look, I've always wanted to do this. Can you please send me on this mission? Can you please sponsor me? And he was just like, you know, I think he talked to John, which is the CEO, and they're just like, yeah, let's send this idiot out. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Quite early. (laughs) So they funded my trip, which was, you know, amazing. Um, And so that's where on CD, it actually took me four months to actually try and track one down. Hold on. I don't think we got to the the core of this, which is the main thing, which is, Peter, Andrew wasn't just trying to find a honey badger or photograph one or tranquilize one and move it. He wanted to hand catch one. Of course he did. That's right, a bigger. So, that's like bigger than like uh, you know. Oh my thing. god! Oh I, yeah! Like, I, like I, I, I got nothing to say. Well, I, I mean, it's we insane. Just, it's we just fucking saw the, insane. We just okay. saw the video where the honey badgers were chasing off a couple of uh, hyenas, African and now we have dogs. a picture of Andrew with, uh, just holding the biggest honey badger I've ever seen with his bare hands. Yeah, uh, that's anyway, crazy. Sorry. All right. So yeah. So it takes you four up, months to find one. Yeah. So Before the, the, even problem, problem, the problem with trying to track down an animal like this is there's a couple of things. And I guess there was a, and I, I know, I know you're going to be able to relate to this because, you know, you grew up in Zimbabwe, right? Zimbabwe but, is a difficult place. Oh, mate. It, the, the quote <laughs> at the end of the entire trip was the hardest thing about trying to catch one of the hardest animals on earth had nothing to do with the animal the people, and had everything to do with the people in between. Mm-hmm. Well, explain. I warned you going into it. I told you it's very corrupt and you're going to have a lot of problems and you got to know whose pockets to grease. Yeah. You're going to so, spend a night in jail. I warned you on all of that. Going the on. caption oh, on your photo, you mentioned extortion and bribery. What? Oh, uh, yeah. What Bribe, scammed. Um, you know, uh, the, the government, uh, which I'd paid thousands of dollars for with a permit in and stuff, just took me around in circles and what they do, their little games and all that kind of stuff. And then Horace gave me a bunch of like amazing contacts, which I ended up tracking down and they seem to be the most like helpful people. I told you. I I was like, don't use the government. (laughs) Right. Yes. And, um, oh, look, what ensued was uh, one hell of an adventure. And I think, um, uh, you know, a social adventure as well. But the, the, one of the biggest issues with, with honey badgers is apart from their, them being a highly intelligent animal is, you're dealing with a species of animal which is completely nomadic. You're dealing with a species of animal that has a huge home range. Like, I mean, their home range can be up to 25, 30 kilometers. You know, this animal can move 20 kilometers throughout the night and be from point A to point B. Mm, Uh, We're talking about an animal that doesn't utilize the same retreats. That's Mm -hmm. huge. You know, because if you're targeting an animal that that goes into the same, like, cabin or burrow or hole, then effectively you can set up a trap or you can wait for it, you can dig it out. But a honey badger doesn't do that. It's using the generational retreats of multiple different animal species so whether it be a jackal whether it be a uh, an aardvark or whatever it might be it that animal itself doesn't know where it's going to land it's almost like a butterfly mm. so when you're trying to track down an animal like this it's in, it's it's incredibly difficult it doesn't matter i had some of the best trackers i'm sure from zimbabwe from zambia helping me to try and track down this animal and with every step closer that we got was still a mile away from this animal because there was no way of being able to predict where it was going to end up. Not to mention, there's a lot of footage of these animals moving around diurnally, like in the daytime. Mm-hmm. They are not a diurnal animal. They're a nocturnal animal. Mm. That's the other thing. That's the other and you problem. Can't, we've talked about this. You can't just like run around the bush at night in Africa. It's not a thing. It's well, not I like tried. anywhere else in the world. And I know yeah, you tried, you lunatic. <laughs> I'm saying norm, like people can't well, just do that. Because yeah, you'll get well, eaten? 
Yeah. Well, look, I saw, I saw, um, I saw <laughs> leopards, I saw hippos at night time. I saw all of that as I was walking through the bush and just, but, uh, and I saw my first badger, I saw three weeks into my trip and I remember chasing and running. And then you've seen uh, African box fawn, right? Mm-hmm. You've seen that before the thicket. Mm-hmm. And I remember chasing it and it went in, it went into Ooh. that. And that's impermeable. You can't get through that. That's no. a matrix. It's a vegetation matrix. So if I was to, if I was retrospectively, if I was to do it again, you don't want to be picking an environment which is like a 3D environment. So what I mean by that is you don't want to be picking somewhere where there's like a lot of um, hideaways and holes and thick vegetation and scrub. Is where people have had their success in catching these animals is essentially in 2D environments. So like in the Kalahari, where you can see this animal in the distance and it can't retreat anywhere. It can't go anywhere. So it literally becomes a foot race to catch these animals. And that's how it's been done in the past. How did you catch you? Um, so obviously you caught uh, one at some point. Right. So I was basically out of uh, Kruger National Park. I'm just trying to think. It's like a German kind of town there. And I went and started doing some interviews with some of the farmers. I'd been told that the best chance of me trying to catch one would be talking to one of these people because there's often a conflict that they have with like jackals and mongooses and badgers Mm. essentially trying to get into their chickens. Mm. So I met up with a guy that was a chicken farmer and essentially he said, look, we've been having a problem with a badger. Um, You know, we're going to, um, you know, we'll try and help you out. We'll try and set up like a bit of a trap. So it was like a bit of like a walk-in Avery and we set up a uh, like a chicken uh, like a carcass and a trap and spring-loaded sort of door system and essentially we got one inside of this like fucking Avery now the interesting thing was after almost four months of trying to catch one of these animals I got a phone call that day and there's I feel like there's not many things that will make my heart start racing but it was it was the phone call of hey yeah. we have a badger and this thing is going to be I don't know how you're going to try and go about handling this thing. Mate. He goes, really? He goes, but I'll film it. And so what, what ensued was I got there and I remember I was actually outside of this like big Avery, big walking room. And there's this badger and he'd been trying to dig out throughout the night and he was just walking just calmly, just along the sides. Mm-hmm. And I remember I got to it and it kind of just like glanced over its shoulder and just looked at me and then just, <laughs> kept doing its thing yeah because they don't give a fuck i mean there's literally memes honey badger don't give a fuck because they don't give their they don't kyle pull up that meme they don't give a fuck because nobody's gonna mess with a honey badger nobody (coughs) ukles is stupid enough to mess with a honey badger nobody they don't don't run away from predators so he's in the room he's in the room the honey badger sees you doesn't seem to care now what right and then i say to the guy i said let me go in there i just want to just suss this animal out and just work with it and the guy goes mate he goes i'm gonna be honest he goes once you're fucking in there he goes this is not your domain anymore i go it's his so anyway he opens up this door locks me in there and i go inside this big fucking avery room with this fucking badger and this is this is the intelligence of the animal he knew the door i'd come in through right so the badger he's just looked over his shoulder he's watched me come through the door and then he's kind of just you know kept doing his thing he's digging inside and then by the time I'd moved halfway to the room, what it done is it took a look at me, it went to the side, it went to the door, and then it stopped. Ah. And it turned because what it essentially done was it goes, well, I know that's your outlet. That's how you get out of this entire traffic. So I'm going to put myself <laughs> between you and the outlet. And that's that's the t- strategic mind of a honey badger. It's, like yep, it's like now I've got you. So it turned and then, mate, I think the footage is quite hilarious and it's for, I think, seven minutes of me trying to get the fuck out of the Avery with this fucking badger just after me. 
And I'm trying to do all things like in that time, I'm jumping over it. I'm trying to grab it by the back leg. But you're you're dealing with an animal that's incredibly ambidextrous, the way in which it can move. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah, um, and it, its spine is like a fucking noodle. You know what I mean? It's what I've always yes. said when we're talking about, about um, mustelids. Like you can't hold them anywhere. You can't hold – they're like fucking noodle creatures with exactly. ferocious teeth. Very difficult. Yeah. So yeah. whilst all this was going on, the guy's like, hey, you're only going to be able to do this with a net. So he ends up giving me a fucking net. And then eventually I get this thing in the net. I get him under control. But not just that. Trying to actually grab a badger, they've just got, it's not like scruffing a fox or scruffing like a feral cat or something like that, where you can actually got something to grab onto. Right. They've got so much loose skin, mm. right? So you've actually got to grab the loose skin and pull it up as high as you can and have as much gravity to actually get the animal off the ground that enables you the ability to handle it. Yeah. Or otherwise you're going to get bit. Wow. I, that Dude, that thing is so big. Yes. It's wild. And weren't you afraid it was just going to claw your face right there in that picture? Oh, look, at, at that at that point in time, I feel like I'd already been through enough. Uh, <laughs> sure. And I just, I just yeah, I, it was kind of almost like a suicidal mission at that point in time. I was just like, <laughs> I, just want, I just want to have this moment with the animal. And did you, did look, you take ret- any? Ret- Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Uh, retrospectively, they are still today my most favorite animal uh it's like a spirit animal um i, I think they're unbelievable it's such an unbelievable species and i feel so sorry for the african continent for them being there <laughs> did you take any damage um no no financial damage yes sure um but in terms of like physical and emotional damage um or maybe a bit of emotional you took damage, plenty of emotional <laughs> damage i remember you yes. calling me halfway through oh, being like angry I've been zimbabwe for two months I Everybody's think... a fucking crook here. I don't know how you lived here. This place is the shittiest country on earth. And I was like, no, you're just dealing with the wrong people. Wrong people. You got to deal with the right people. Like yeah. the government will fuck you. And not, uh, I'm not trying to throw you under the bus here, but you just can't do it the right way in Zimbabwe. You can't do it you on can't. paper. You can't do it. Uh, and people don't understand and, this. When you come and, from America or the Western world, you're like, check the boxes, dot the I's, cross the T's, do things the right way. And I respect yeah. that. And I understand that. You should do that in the Western world. You cannot do that in Zimbabwe. It doesn't, you don't understand. All that happens is you get walked like a bloody dog on a leash and write check after check after check and hand out piles and piles of money. And they just look at you with dollar signs in your eyes like, oh, this boy is a bottomless pit. And they'll just walk you around and around in circles getting you to to pay. And that's what happened to Andrew for two and a half, three months. And then finally connected with some of my friends and got pointed in the right direction. But it just... uh, yeah, it was. <laughs> I know. I know what you've been through because I oh, lived it. I lived it. it it's, it's it's unbelievable. It it really it really is. And uh, look, I did meet some amazing people along the way. Uh, but um, you know, retrospectively, and it's so true. You know, when when you when your example, when your template is coming from a first world country, you know, Australia mm-hmm. or the US, um, the interesting your word is your word. You right. know, and and the value system that we have in most places is your word is honest. It's transparent. And it's to the point. It's, a, it's quite literally black and white. And the unfortunate thing is when you go to these places, you get nothing more than the African promise. You get yeah. promised everything. Mm-hmm. And this, you know, and I think, um, you know, it wasn't my first radio. I'd been to Africa before and I dealt with this, but I felt as though because there was a goal and I was trying to achieve something that was so hard, they just found that as a, a way of being able to exploit me. And at every single level, like I've I met up with the environmental ministers of the countries. I've met up with, Everyone, everyone in between, and it's all part of the documentary. And I think it's it's interesting because I filmed the entire thing. It's sitting on a hard drive, and I haven't released anything. Oh, really? I, no, I haven't released anything. 
When I'll, are you going to release it? Well, I guess when I've got a production company that wants to yeah, we're talking about it. If there's anyone, if there's any production companies listening, then that yeah, so. <laughs> hell yeah, um, for real. Andrew, you mentioned you teased it earlier. The audience okay. has been waiting now 25 minutes. Anytime <laughs> we talk about Tasmanian Tiger, people are nuts. What? Like <laughs> I was like, oh, hold on a minute. bitch. Wait, wait, what? Oh, that was that was good. I, 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 I was like a little bit shocked. I didn't know what to say or do for a second. I was like, all right, here comes Neil Waters. Um, what? A- <laughs> tell surprise <laughs> guest. Tell us. Talk to us, Ukes. Tell us the story. Well, well, I want to ask you some questions. You know, and I think um, a question that I, I've received is, you know, uh, one of my thoughts about there still being like a small population of Tasmanian tigers remaining in the remoteness of the Tasmanian wilderness. Mm. And I think um, you have to think about this, this type of issue. Um, and obviously, you know, being a wildlife biologist, you've got to think about this in layers. Yeah. But where my mind goes is straight to, why don't we look at why this animal became extinct based on its behavior? And it was probably because this animal didn't have the fear of humans. It was an opportunist. It was a scavenger. Um, it had a large home range. And essentially, even today, if it was around, I can almost guarantee you it would almost be very similar to like a raccoon or a fox where it's going to be popping up at campsites. It's going to be popping up at, at rubbish bins. It's going to be popping up in areas where it's going to have a very uh, efficient way of being able to uh, hunt food. So on people's farms and properties and all that kind of stuff. And so when you think about it within the context of behavior and ask yourself the question of, right, do I believe there are Tasmanian tigers still roaming around out there in the wilderness? I think the, the pretty fast answer to that is no, I don't, I don't believe there is. I don't believe there's enough wilderness out there. And it's one of those, Another layering effect that people often use is, well, it's the remoteness, you know, and the Tasmanian um, forest, and it is, is incredibly dense and there's such a thick matrix and there could be a small pocket population that could be existing out there. But I just feel with the amount of paths and roads and the amount of, um, um, you know, game cameras and the amount of individuals which are out there on motorbikes and not just that, the amount of roadkill, which is out through Tasmania. I'm not sure if you've been to Tasmania, but the amount of roadkill which is there, Crazy. One would have popped up. One would have been hit by a car. We're talking about an animal that I, I believe was quite aloof to the interaction of humans. I don't believe that they, they, they probably had a good flight distance, the same as like a dingo, but I, I don't believe they were such a nervous animal uh, because then that wouldn't make sense as to why they were um, shot to extinction. They're obviously a very easy animal to get a target on. So I don't, I don't, I personally believe that they're, they're not there. That, no, I, I agree with you, by the way. And I've said that before, and I actually have a whole video on this coming out pretty soon. But um, I believe that they have been expatriated from Tasmania. Now, I'll, I'll tell you this. I think that they were around in Tasmania much later than they were declared gone, and they were yeah. functionally extinct and slowly weeded down um, long after Benjamin died in the Hobart Zoo. I don't think mainland Australia had any. I know sightings still pop up. These are just my opinions, by the way, based on my searches, interviews, chats with people, blah, 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 blah. But I do believe, and I've said this many times before, that if there is still a population, that it would be a very small and fragmented subspecies, but a population nonetheless of thylacine in Western Papua or possibly Papua New Guinea, where dingoes have not been able to penetrate. Because outside of expatriation from human beings and being targeted you know, by, by bounty-placed hunting, these yeah. animals were primarily outcompeted by dingoes. There's really no other reason that they went away from Australia and, and New Guinea. So as long as you find an area 
that those animals would have been in, evolutionarily speaking, they would have been naturalized to those areas without being out without being outcompeted by dingoes being introduced 4,000 years ago. That's where they would still be. And I think I know where some of those areas could be in Western Papua and Papua New Guinea. So I agree with you. I don't think they're in Tasmania. I, I, I went, I looked, I don't think they're there. And believe well, guess- me, Andrew, we've tried to get multiple different times. We've tried to get someone to fund the expedition to this one particular part of, of Western Papua, which, you know, still has, you know, upwards of 50 uncontacted tribes. Yeah. Um, you know, there was one botanical survey that went there 20 years ago and right. didn't go very well. Um right. But uh, yeah, we've we've tried to get someone to fund it. It's not a cheap expedition and and a brutal one, but my fantasy scenario would be the two of you and Bradley Trevor Grieve all together. Oh, God, it'd be great. Go in, bungee jump out of helicopters. You're in the bush. Spend three months, find the thing. Yeah. And and there are all these stories, Andrew, uh, you know, I can go, I I don't want to get started because I'll go on for hours, but there are all these stories of moon tigers and this and that of these local indigenous people people that come out of the forest that have lived there, you know, several generations and have firsthand reports of seeing them, just like you said, like a raccoon or a skunk mm. outside of camp, digging through the trash, whatever. And this is someone who walked from his village and ended up in another village and ended up in another village and now lives in Port Moresby. But when he was 18 years old, he used to feed the thylacine outside of his, outside of his village. And these are always in villages that don't have dogs, by the way. They don't have sure. dogs. They don't have dingoes. So there's mm. nothing to outcompete them. Because it was Nick, it was Nick, a ranger by the name of Nick Mooney. Yeah. Wasn't, wasn't he, he was yep. the individual that last spotted that one in Tasmania. Yep. And Two. I don't, I, 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 have you met him before? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We did a show with him. Yeah, Nick's uh, an okay. incredible guy. Amazing. And, 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 I, I, I 100% believe yeah. he, he saw what he saw. There's no tourism plug for Tasmania embedded into that or nope. whatever it is. I, I genuinely believe that this individual saw one out there, what, what may have been the last one at that time. Yeah. But, do you believe, you know, because obviously I've, I watch a lot uh, of what's been happening in terms of the research of, of the potential of a reintroduction. What, you know, what are your thoughts on that? It's coming. It's coming in the next 10 years. I think that, you know, uh, Colossal is working with Aussie Ark. They're working with the Dunart, the closest living relative. We used to think it was the Quoll, but now we know it's the Dunart. Uh, not Quoll. What, what oh. do we think it was before? Uh, maybe it was the Quoll. Anyway, they're now working working with Dunart DNA, uh, the Numbat. That's right. Thanks, Edwin. Uh, we thought it was the Numbat, but now we know it's not. Um, and uh, they're working with the Dunart, and they are building the genome from existing specimens of the thylacine so that they can, uh, through artificial wombs and, and through Dunarts, make a thylacine, and Aussie Ark is going to manage the reintroduction. What do I think of it? I mean, you said it yourself. You've been to Tasmania. How much roadkill is on those roads? How much facial tumor disease is wiping out uh the devils how much mange is taking over the the wallabies and the wombats there i mean it's unbelievable kyle just uh, people should see this pull up a picture of the mange on the wombats in tasmania it's crazy and this is because there is no predator to regulate these mid-sized animals that is the reason that these populations have exploded and these diseases have become rampant that animal that you're looking at right there would not be alive if there was a thylacine in the environment, because a thylacine would see that weak link and pick it off and eat it, right? That's what mm-hmm. predators do. They see the weak and the injured and they they get rid of them. So diseases like what you're seeing with that mange wouldn't spread so rampantly. So what do I think? I think it's fucking fantastic, man. I can't wait for them to do it. 
Now, does that mean we go and make a bunch of thylacines in a lab and just dump them in Tasmania and be like, good luck? Of course not, right? <laughs> it's slow. It's controlled. Yeah, it's slow. It's controlled. You do it in a test area, a small site. You add certain types of prey. You monitor how that interaction works. You make sure they're, they're viable. Their reproduction is viable and they're not genetically bottlenecked and that they, they're not, you know, the offspring aren't all deformed and mutated. And, you know, it's like it's a very slow process. It's not like, oh, thylacine are back. There they go. You know, it's like a very slow, like, okay, we made one. Now we made two. Now they're in an acre. Now they're in five acres. Now they're in 50 acres. You know, it's like a big control group and you got to test everything. And then you slowly begin to reintroduce them into the right areas that are all managed. Like, this is not an overnight thing. But what do I think? I think it's the best fucking thing in the world. Like, I couldn't be more excited. What I know right now in my core belief system is one way or another in my lifetime, I will get to see a thylacine. I've seen them in museums. I've held dead specimens. But in my lifetime, whether I find one in Western Papua and Pat and I figure out how to get this fucking $5 million project <laughs> funded, or I'm standing next to the guys at Colossal the day one is born, I will get to see a thylacine in my lifetime. And just that's, that's on a selfish level. But outside of that, on a biological level, they are going to effectively repair the ecosystem that is so terribly damaged in Tasmania. I'm thrilled about it. Yep. Yukels, what, uh, we got to wrap up here, but what's, what's next for you, man? What's the next so, big adventure? Uh, I'm talking with a, uh, a producer at the moment from Australia. And essentially we want to do a series uh, up here in the Northern Territory. So um, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, uh, social dismay going on at the moment with the booming uh, crocodile population. Mm -hmm. uh, as you know, uh, Australia, essentially we went from a population of 3,000 crocodiles back in the 1970s now to well over 150,000 crocodiles. And wow. been that they're somewhat succeeding their, um, their carrying capacity. And they've tried to do a number of things to curveball the population in terms of, you know, crocodile farming as a commodity and all that kind of stuff. But now of recent, um, the Australian government has actually been questioning whether they introduced a cull. And so, mm. uh, obviously, on you know, on one end with the ecologists and the conservationists, um, there's um, a huge concern uh, uh, as to what kind of like trophic cascade effect that this might have on the environment. Right. So, um, and anyway, there's there's so much which is entailed into this, uh, you know, socially, culturally, um, you know, particularly with um, the relationship the indigenous people have to the animal. And um, in one article I just read, which I thought was interesting. Uh, a lot of um, big fashion um, brands and labels are actually getting away from the use of animal products like crocodiles, for example. And it's probably because something something along the lines of, um, you know, the husbandry practices of uh, of what the actual farming uh, setups right. look like with animals. And so obviously on animal welfare kind of thing, they've, they've tried to go away from that and and, and step more into like the, uh, the use of bio, uh, biotechnology and different fabrics and all that kind of stuff. So uh, there was actually one farm in the Northern Territory. Um, now I, I'm not sure if it was Northern Territory in Queensland that started using crocodiles as uh, blood and bone for fertilizer. Now, I'm not sure how a lot of people would feel that one of the most iconic Australian animals is being used as fertilizer. So yeah. anyway. Um, there's a lot there's of other a, uses for crocodiles too. I mean, skins and leathers hmm. and meat and you know, sure. I think fertilizer is kind of a low priority, I would think. But, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So um, there's a number of hot topics which are happening in the Northern Territory at the moment. And uh, essentially, we're going to be uh, focusing on a couple of these hot topics. And obviously, crocodiles is one. And the other is to do with, and this is obviously a little bit about what we discussed about the concern of what will be the next COVID and um, the number of uh, 
uh, amplifier or, or reservoir animals that we have in the Northern Territory um, that can harbour some of the most dangerous diseases known to man, tuberculosis, brucellosis, uh, Japanese encephalitis, you know, what is going to be the next zoonotic disease, which is either going to hit into the primary production industry and or is going to be a direct uh, a threat to public safety. Damn. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're a stone throw from Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. uh, quite mm-hmm. literally. And, um, you know, we've got a very strict biosecurity here in Australia uh, because we, we have to. Yeah. And um, we have uh, a lot of concern, particularly with what's coming in from Southeast Asia. You know, we've got some, some rampant diseases sure. which are right on our shoreline. So, um, yeah, there's a, a bit of an idea and a bit of a concept based around that as well. And, nice. um, yeah, I think it'll be really interesting. And I think also to uh, a pivotal point in my career where I'm doing things which are a bit more um, social, political, a bit more, um, you know, investigative journalism and all that kind of stuff. And a little bit different from the, you know, the sure. crazy, um, crazy yugles, you know, the psychopath. <laughs> um, so it's now about using my experience, my knowledge, my skill set. And now being able to ask the hard questions to get the answers to. And that, uh, oh, sorry, Andrew. And that that experience, that knowledge, and that skill set is materialized in another way too, because you're doing Yukel's Wild Tours now, right? Yeah. So um, Australian Wild Tours in Northern Territory, and uh, look, that that's essentially about teaching people a skill set and an ability to survive in the Australian outback. And so I take very exclusive small groups um, of individuals uh, into the bush. We do it for three days, or even do like overnight tours. And um, essentially, I teach you how to survive. That's just it. And so I've got a bit of a program, and it's all been incorporated in a very uh, conservation uh, way. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, the feral pigs that I catch, not only am I teaching people how to catch them, how to be utilising the meat content of that, I'm also giving tissue samples to the veterinary laboratories um, in Darwin because they're testing for different diseases. Hmm. Uh, with the sharks that we're catching on the program, we're doing shark tagging. Um you know, with, with the uh, with the species of, of snakes that I'm finding uh, out there in the bush as well, uh, we're putting that information to the NT Fauna Atlas so people are able to identify what species of snakes are in certain areas. So what we've tried to do is uh, we've tried to create a, a tour which has like a bit of a research focus, but at the same time, it's fun, it's adventurous, it gets people out there and it's something which is different and it hasn't, something like this hasn't been offered in Australia and um, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go pretty gung-ho with it. So yeah. Very nice, yeah. dude. That's yeah. awesome. Well, congrats and congrats on the evolution of your your career to now yeah. you're an investigative journalist with a sprinkle of survival. Cool. And That's wildlife. it. Yeah, there um, you go. <laughs> dude, great to see you. Thank you so much for, for hanging out with us. Yes, man. Thank you. I've learned quite a bit, Thank more you. than I ever learned with these two. This is true. This <laughs> Thank is you true. so much for having me. And it's always great seeing you guys. And I hope next time I can, I can see you guys in person when I'm back out. Yeah. There. Let us Absolutely. know when you're cru- cruising back through the States again on your way back. So enjoy yeah. your time in Central America, Andrew. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, yeah, everybody go check out Andrew's uh, Andrew's social media and the wild tours. Get yourself a nice tour of the Outback with Andrew Eucles. Yeah. Barefoot. Let's go. You must All be right. barefoot. All right. And Good wild- night, everybody. <laughs> Wait. Yeah. Peter, do the thing. Yeah. And while... And- oh yeah, that thing. Sorry. God damn it. Sorry, Peter. <laughs> Edit. Clear your throat. What Get rid of your hiccups. World? I'm really sorry. This is very unprofessional. Yeah, you're a mess. And while you're at it, go to thewildtimes.club forward slash info to find all of the links to all the stuff that we have to offer. And what do we offer? We offer four additional bonus pods uh, every single month. That's six total podcasts a month ad free. If you want to sign up on the Spotify, uh, you know, have at it. It's wonderful. Do it. 
wildtimes.club forward slash info. And don't forget to check out Andrew Uchel, Andrew Uchel's all of his socials. Good night. Good night, everybody. No problems here. God damn it. I got to start. MPH. <laughs> so frustrating.